Hi everybody, I'm Mark D. What does the D stand for? Detective. It stands for detective. And this is the second entry into the Noir Vember series. Uh, that intro was sent in by your mom. Yeah, and we're jumping right into the shallow end with the most basic ass choice for, you know, this that one could make. But boy, howdy. <laughs> boy, howdy do I like this movie. Here's a trailer, or at least the opening crawl, and then here's a trailer. I don't, I don't know yet. Come closer. I want to talk to you. I'm going to tell you an astounding story. The story of the Maltese Falcon. 600 years, the Falcon has carried the mystery of a fabulous wealth under its grotesque wings. I could tell you a thousand tales of the men and women who have hunted this evil bird. But every story has the same ending. Murder. Listen to these incredible people, all consumed by their passionate greed for the Maltese Falcon. What have you ever given me beside money? Have you ever given me any of your confidence, any of the truth? Haven't you tried to buy my loyalty with money and nothing else? What else is there I can buy you with? I won't play this out for you. I haven't lived a good life. I've been bad. Worse than you could know. We were talking about a lot more money than this. There are more of us to be taken care of now. Well, that may be, but I've got the falcon. You may have the falcon. We certainly have you. I've taken a lot of riding from you, I'm gonna take. Get up and shoot it out. Stop it, the police will be here any minute. Now talk. Oh, how can you accuse me of such a terrible... This isn't the time for that schoolgirl act. We're both of us sitting under the gallows. All right, all right, all right. Well, by the numbers, the Maltese Falcon was released three times. Well, no, it wasn't. But there were three iterations. We are concerning ourselves with the 1941 version. The book was published in 1930, and hot on the heels of the book release was the 1931 film adaptation originally, originally, wow, having a hard time with that one, originally titled The Maltese Falcon. But it was, um, hey, you know, for lack of better terms available to me at this very instant, Goofier and hornier. This was a pre-code movie, and well, I, holy shit, I guess now we need to talk about the motion picture production code for a second. The motion picture production code was a whole rubric for self-censorship in, in motion pictures. Yep. This was also widely known as the Hayes Code, named for Will H. Hayes, but honestly, I prefer Willie Mays Hayes. The code came to be in 1930, but didn't really start popping off until 1934, 
the Motion Picture Association, or MPA, or as we know it today, the MPAA, was and is a trade association for the major studios making motion pictures. Wait, what the hell is a trade association? The Japanese aliens from Star Wars? Apparently, we're learning all types of shit today. So a trade association, or a trade group, or an industry body is funded by the businesses that operate in that industry, and they pretty much handle all the industry-wide stuff, from self-regulation, obviously, to lobbying and conferences. The code also insisted that crime was not to be shown as being justified. I'm pretty sure that there was wiggle room there. However, it did indeed set the tone for movies to come. So then the Hayes Code, it was basically puritanical garbage under the pretext of moral morality, if you allow me to editorialize. Of particular interest here for the 1931 The Maltese Falcon is the sanitizing of displays of sexuality and, even more poignantly, displays of homosexuality. We'll talk about that later on, but the end result is that after 1931, this shit was decidedly not code compliant and could not be distributed unedited in the United States. The 1931 Maltese Falcon finally reemerged many years later after the abolition of the Hayes Code and adoption of the MPAA ratings and was retitled Dangerous Female. It was originally released, again, that fucking word, June 13th, 1931, with a runtime of an hour and 20 minutes. We're hitting a 6.9 on IMDb, nice, and a 71% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's roughly the same movie as the 1941 version in that they both play close to the script or to the book, I should say. It's interesting to see how those 10 years changed filmmaking technically and artistically. Round two is both different and from what I've seen of it, uh, markedly worse. It was called Satan Met a Lady. This is this This one is notable because of the Satan part. And we will definitely talk about that, but it is way goofier and likely less horny. It looked like they were going for a, the Thin Man vibe, but with like 2% of the charisma. At least from the trailer. I haven't actually seen the movie. It was released July 22nd, 1936 with a runtime of an hour and 14 minutes. This one sits at a 6.1 on IMDb and a 22% on Rotten Tomatoes. I can't get anything more than the trailer at the moment, so I'm going to go based on the trailer, you know, which, as I've heard, actually misrepresents the fuck out of this movie because it was really focused on, on Betty Davis and she's not actually the star. But the, the Rotten Tomatoes score is, is something to go on, though, and the reviews are, are interesting. I did find a few audio clips, and it is indeed a form of humor that I do like. I think um, I found the audio clip to be Mel Brooks' light. Again, from the little bit that I heard. Just seeing the trailer, I heard the trailer was bunk BS, but the movie looks awful from the trailer. From the audio clip, could be fun. Final round, hopefully, because if they try to remake this movie, they will fail spectacularly even if it's good, is again titled The Maltese Falcon, starring Humphrey Bogart and Mary Astor. This is the one that we all know. Released October 18th, 1941, with a runtime of one hour and 21 minutes, 
It is hanging out at a cool 8.0 on IMDb and a real cool 100p, 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Tomatoes. Well, I fucked that one up. Worth, though. The budget info I have is that the film cruised in under 400 grand, which is roughly 7.5 million of today's dollars. That makes it a decently small movie, all things considered, but bigger than what a lot of people can get funding for in the current state of filmmaking. Last I heard, getting a movie made for about a million was kind of the sweet spot because it was enough to, to do something, but not so much that everybody wants to micromanage it. This amount was characterized as being B-movie money in 1941, you know, and translating it from today dollars, it would be a bit less than, uh, a bit more, actually, I think, than Cast a Deadly Spell. If you know more about budgets in the early 40s, hit me up on Twitter at CoolMarkD, Cool with a C and Mark with a K. Box office, according to financial statements released by Warner Brothers, was $1.8 million which is roughly equivalent to $33.5 million of today dollars. But again, the, the size of, of media, the size of advertising, and the number of exhibitors and the cost of uh, ticket prices and things like that are very different now. So that's not a one-to-one -one inflation translation. I'd like to think that everyone is familiar with the movie, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to make an attempt to provide a brief and relatively spoiler-free impressionist summary of the plot. We open on Samuel Spade, private detective, professional cool guy, and hobbyist womanizer in the Spade and Archer Detective Agency offices located in San Francisco, California, USA. A beautiful woman comes in to see Spade and asks him to follow a man who has kept her sister away from their family. Before Spade can accept the job, his partner, Miles Archer, comes in. Together, they extract an excessive sum of money for this job. However, Archer, intent on being even more of a womanizer than Spade, insists he take the job personally so as to improve his chances. Sam Spade is then woken up in the middle of the night to news that Miles Archer had been shot and killed. After visiting the scene of the murder, he is met at his home by police detectives who report to him that the person that Archer was shadowing was also killed. Things are looking particularly grim for Sam Spade as he is under suspicion for any combination of murders in that evening, which he spent alone. Throughout the movie, he will navigate this human web of crime and unravel the plot with the audience tagging along. What dangers will Sam Spade face next? Dialogue is so damned important. I talked a bit about DeShiel Hammett in the previous episode, so I will skip that part of the discussion and kind of mosey into, mosey along into this book, and ultimately this screenplay. So much comes from the book. The book feels like it might as well have been a screenplay kind of like The Martian. Hammett really did have a gift for Gab. The dialogue in this movie is just so fucking good. And it's by far and large already written in the source. Yes, absolutely a lot of it is in the delivery, sure. And, and holy hell, 
do the actors deliver in this one. This movie catapulted Humphrey Bogart into stardom and started a movement called Film Noir. I say started because this was this this one was probably the first real big hit. One of the first 25 movies to make it into the Library of Congress big. Variety magazine said The Maltese Falcon was, and I quote, one of the best examples of actionful and suspenseful melodramatic storytelling in cinematic form. They also, just so that I know that you know, did not call it film noir, or film noir, which is just sounds too weird, but that's how you probably should say it. That term hadn't really been invented yet and didn't quite make it into existence until the 1970s. They called it melodrama. And that seems so fit for a soap opera these days. But these were movies about the hopelessness of the human condition framed in the jagged shadows of the modern urban jungle. Money, lust, power, all of it. Hammett was tuned into this, though. He somewhat christened the ship that was the hard-boiled fiction genre himself. And at the bow of it was the dialogue. I would have used figurehead, which would have been more appropriate, but the way that we use that now, it's like a fake or, or symbolic thing. In his early stories, he has lines like, emotions are useless during business hours. From Zigzags of Treachery in 1924, and I didn't know then, and I don't know now whether she was the owner of the world's best poker face or was just naturally stupid. But whichever she was, she was thoroughly and completely it. From women, politics, and murder, also in 1924. That one would have made my high school English teachers flip their shit. Well, except for my senior year AP British Lit teacher, who was extremely cool. The more I learn about that guy, the, the fucking cooler he is. Like, holy shit. I'd love to have a sit down with him now, but I, I don't even know if he's still around, honestly. Uh, but, but that's early on in Hammett's career, and, and fuck it, man. I'll, t I'll talk out of my ass, and I will say that Hammett is better than Hemingway. I'll admit freely that I'm much less read in Hemingway. You know, I, I read most of a, a Farewell to Arms when I was in high school. And, and Old Man in the Sea at one point. But I do still think that Hammett is better than Hemingway. Hammett goes without pretense, without the show, focused, narrow. In A Farewell to Arms, uh, Hemingway is making these short, concise statements about his life, but also it's more about your life or what you th should think of life or, or what life might or, or might not be. He's trying to make this very sweeping, broad, and grand thing. But Hammett is very focused in that he is making these short, concise statements about humanity, with his lived experience backing it up. And he wasn't always the good guy. The difference between the early continental op stories that Hammett was writing versus the Maltese Falcon was that Hammett was writing a character in Falcon, another person, a, a made-up person. The continental op was ostensibly a mechanism for Hammett to work out his own life and examine himself. As opposite to him as the Continental Op was to be described, because Hammett was a tall, slender man, good-looking, the Continental Op was kind of all those opposites. But Sam Spade was made up. 
he was better than real. Not to say that Hammett didn't put himself in this book, I assure you that he did, but in having Sam Spade be the star of this world, he was one step removed, and indeed probably handled the most personal examination of his philosophy of life in this book through a story that Spade, again only in the book, tells Bridget about a man who fully realizes his mortality. Yes, I very much think that Sam Spade and the Continental Op were based heavily on DeShiel Hammett's authentic self as well as his idealized self. Especially in this very specific genre, he created a particular style of both prose and dialogue. Because oftentimes the prose was the internal monologue or the report, quote, you know, air quotes, the report of the first person op, which was sprinkled liberally with snappy comebacks and rich metaphors. It was so specific that it actually kind of turned back on itself and was selected to be the entry point for parody. And that's okay. That's okay. Nothing, nothing lasts forever, but parody doesn't destroy it. Parody doesn't destroy. It validates. I think it validates. Someone is listening, surely, and plenty have listened to Hammett and to the Maltese Falcon in particular to get it. When you spawned a page on an improv comedy website with tips on parodying your, your genre, you've, you've really made it. Link in the show notes, by the way, but one of my favorite uh, parts is generating the titles. And then one type of title the page reads can be any well-known phrase which has had one of its words removed and replaced with the word murder. For example, coffee, tea, or murder. Another point from this Comedy You page that feels very real is the metaphor and simile structure. To have something narrowed down to such a fine point, yet still be universally accepted, implies intimate knowledge of it. Or, or maybe it is at the surface of the thing, just very one-dimensional and silly. I will let you decide. But this movie, it's not the parody. It isn't that. It's not there. This is the classier version of that. The one that didn't yet jump the shark, that instead you know, proposed uh, creating the shark, maybe, to, to or water skiing, or whatever the case is. In the beginning, when Sam Spade tells the person who was ostensibly... Miss Wonderly. Oh, that. Well, we, we didn't exactly believe your story, Miss. Uh, what is your name? Wonderly or LeBlanc? It's really O'Shaughnessy. Bridget O'Shaughnessy. We didn't exactly believe your story, Miss O'Shaughnessy. We believed you $200. I got chills. He's real cool about it because he, he wants to knock the boots. But at that point, Miles Archer is dead. And I'll throw you a spoiler warning right now. Spoilers. They're, the spoilers are going to show up real soon. They're going to show up now. He is quite open about his deception as well as hers. It's interesting to be faced with this uh, tier of transparency in life, and especially in business. That might even be the thesis of Hammett and this movie's beliefs. That we are exactly as we are, and if we can make it okay for everyone, let's then let's do it that way. But if we can't, then we won't. Not to say that Spade was completely transparent with Wonderly at that point, because as we will see, he usually never is with anyone. Another Hammett thesis, I suspect. Anyway, 
at that point, Miles Archer is dead, and it looks like they're trying to get Spade on the hook for it. He's definitely got some history there, and isn't his history is not on the up and up as you may have figured this out by now. He hasn't, he's never quite seen a skirt that he didn't like. He definitely likes Miss Wonderly who will find out is Bridget O'Shaughnessy and he 100% gets mixed up romantically and even forces a kiss on her. But that's the interesting part. Did he just get too brain horny and, and go for it? Was she teeing him up for this the whole time because she needed the protector She'd already killed Miles, and Wilmer killed Thursby. Was he playing along because he knew that was the only way he would be able to follow the trail to find Miles's killer? It could be more than just one of those things. It could be all three. He's, he's already banging Archer's wife, and he admits that he didn't even like him all that much. What does that say about Spade? It's easy to lose track of Samuel Spade through Bogart's performance, but he's in lust with Bridget, certainly, and maybe even in love with her because she's dangerous, and that seems to be his milieu. But when finally landing O'Shaughnessy for the murder of Archer and giving her the tortured speech about his duty, his honor, and his business, she tells him, What have we got on the other side? All we've got is that maybe you love me and maybe I love you. You know whether you love me or not. Maybe I do. I'll have some rotten nights after I've sent you over, but that'll pass. And at this point, he's already broken a bunch of laws and said, fuck the police, directly to the police. His choice here was, was never a choice. He talked it through for us. He explained it. But, but in the book, Spade is real chill, like James Bond. In the movie, Bogart plays him conflicted. This dichotomy, this, this paradox almost, makes the character so, so interesting. He told O'Shaughnessy earlier. You won't get into any trouble, will you? I don't mind a reasonable amount of trouble. But he's gone through so much just to figure out this case and close the book on the murder of Miles Archer. The Continental Op never really got here. The Op was never enough of a character. Mind you, if I, if I haven't explained it and you're unfamiliar, the, the Continental Op was a nameless private detective that worked for a national firm called The Continental. The Op was just as quippy, if not quippier than Spade, but he was never a person. Bogart took the role and, and really ran with it, the role of Sam Spade. And there is just so much talking, not a whole lot of action in this movie. Were it not for the sheer variety of interiors, I would say that you could do this on a Broadway stage, and I think that if you were creative enough, you probably still could. But at the end of the day, it's just talk. Actors moving through a scene and flapping their mouths. But it works. It It works. And it's the dialogue. And it's how the performers stepped up to make it happen. Sam Spade went through several interpretations, some with more license than others. And I'd like to touch upon them, and I shall be stack ranking them in the unit of Satan's, since, as per the book, Sam Spade looks like a tall, blonde Satan. 
1931 Sam Spade was played by Ricardo Cortes. And I've seen some clips of his performance, and while the material is extremely similar, the dynamics of it don't don't feel or flow quite as well. I do have that bias that I consider Bogart to be the definitive version of the character, so you can freely assume that I'm wrong here. But uh, Cortes was actually Jacob Krantz and had adopted a stage name that seemed more appealing for the era of silent films. He was a pretty suave-looking dude, but perhaps wasn't unique enough to stand out. You know, he did start in silent films and managed to transition over to talkies, and he definitely played the part well enough. It just, it wasn't the performance. And to be fair, maybe filmmaking wasn't even there just yet. Things were changing so quickly at the time. Cortes does look a bit like a Satan, though. Two Satans for him. The 1936 Sam Spade was actually renamed Ted Shane and was played by Warren William. William was a very popular stage and screen actor in the 1930s, and I really can't think of a parallel for someone of that stature ending up in what I guess would be potentially, based on the trailer, the Van Wilder of detective movies. He made it out of Satan Met a Lady to end up being the first actor to play Perry Mason in a movie and also starred in several franchises centered around criminals and detectives. From the trailer, I saw that William portrayed Shane as light and whimsical, like when he gets a gun pulled on him by Betty Davis's character, Kim Carnes, leave me alone, and he yells and pulls himself up on a doorframe. He does look way more like a Satan, though. Three Satans for Warren William. The 1941 Sam Spade was Bogey himself, an iconic actor in America that somehow changed the idea of what a tough guy was. A Bogart in some ways became that guy. He grew up in an affluent but cold home and ended up being expelled from boarding school and joining the Navy during World War I, as one does. After his stint, he returned to find the family in decidedly poorer states financially, and he struck off on his own. He found his way into Broadway, despite having never taken an acting lesson, as one does, and just jumped into the deep end. He spent his spare time drinking heavily, as one does. <laughs> Before the 20s ran out, he'd married twice and gone to Hollywood. The 30s didn't bring about much change. His career wasn't going too great, but it was going. His marriage was on the rocks, and his gin was, too. He'd had a string of supporting roles in gangster movies, and he even said at one point, Nobody likes me on sight. I suppose that's why I'm cast as the heavy. He was also in a movie called Angels with Dirty Faces, and that must have been the inspiration for the in-universe movie Angels Without Wings in Home Alone. He did strike up a friendship with John Huston, who you may remember from the Chinatown episode, and starred in a movie written by Houston called High Sierra in 1941. The Falcon was John Houston's directorial debut, and we'll talk about that. But Bogart went on to have a, a climb to superstardom that began at High Sierra and The Maltese Falcon. Some of these movies you may have heard, like To Have and To Have Not, The Big Sleep, 
Dark Passage, Key Largo, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, The African Queen, and The Cane Mutiny. He'd made it. Bogart, however, is, is not how I would characterize Sam Spade's literary description. One Satan for Bogart. And this goes for the rest of the cast who are selected with, um, they, they are selected with general disregard to the details of the novel, but with attention for what will make this a film. Bogart was chosen specifically, not only through the friendship he had with John Huston, but through the qualities he had, which others did not among them. He was cool. He'd worked making gangster movies seemingly nonstop in the 30s and had essentially began forming his own image that is not so different than that of one Samuel Spade. He was 5'8", and that many years out of the Navy, he didn't seem to be physically intimidating at all. But he could play intimidating, so his characters were intimidating. Low angles made him bigger. The stage fighting in this movie doesn't hold up to current standards, but then again, it didn't for any movie of the time. Regardless, Sam Spade will take your gun and knock you out with one punch every time. This this archetypal nature, especially, you know, from Bogart's performances in his later movies, but also in Bogart in general, was a huge inspiration for Indiana Jones, specifically Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Casablanca would also be a performance that ends up in Lucas's lookbook alongside Treasure and Maltese Falcon, Millennium Falcon. And my guess is that the, the white suit jacket at Club Obi-Wan in Temple, you know, it, yes, it's a different style jacket, but also with good reason, because the one that Bogart wears looks shitty and the one that Harrison Ford wears looks awesome, but it's just due to the time. But Bogart here in this movie sets the stage for what is to be how a detective talks. He is the definitive detective voice. And that was something that struck me. Bogart had a very unique voice. I've heard caricatures of it, and I've heard the movie version. But on the Blu-ray, there are several radio plays of the Maltese Falcon starring most of the cast of the film, and in one of them, Bogart sounds very different. The Maltese Falcon. The starring players... This is Humphrey Bogart. This is Mary Astor. This is Sidney Greenstreet. And this is Peter Lorre. There's actually a voice disorder named for Humphrey Bogart and his ultimate wife, Lauren Bacall, called Bogart-Bacall Syndrome. And the idea there is that they both suffered from this overuse of the voice, especially when speaking in a lower pitch than one normally would. Sam Spade had a very particular voice from friendly to menacing in no time. And it would appear that Bogart made use of that voice throughout his career. That also made me wonder what they were using to capture sound around these days. So let's take a super dorky detour into the technology of movie audios in the 1940s. And to start, we start naturally, as I do. At the beginning, having sound was one thing as silent films were accompanied by orchestra or even Foley or whatever kind of real world analog, but having speech, but having dialogue 
was something else entirely. This shifted and expanded the way in which film could be and had been experienced. Anyway, for the technical stuff. Film and film sound were, in some ways, develop, developing concurrently. In the Chicago World's Fair, it was reported that Thomas Edison and Laurie Dickinson presented the Kinetophone, which was a system device of their early film camera coupled with the recording and playback capability of the cylinder, cylinder phonograph. If you haven't seen a QVC clip of the gentleman displaying one of these cylinder records and dropping it, well, well, it's very depressing and they are rare and uniquely historical as they are all truly unique. But that's what we're talking about here. Same vibe as a vinyl record, just cylindrical and not as good. Sound was also not synchronized on these devices, you know, or, or it would seem that there is a little bit of debate over that fact, but regardless, it wasn't great. Sound did seem to have been live recorded with the recording of the, the film. So at least, at least that was something. There were many advances between then and uh, 1904, but in the interest of time and sound, this is when Eugene Laust created the first sound on film system. Sounds weird, but what sound on film means is that sound is represented through light and dark or through tonality, probably through some mechanism of light generation. I don't want to be presumptuous and I also, I don't need that much detail. And then imprinted in a film strip of, of, of 35 millimeter film, a reel, right? that had been divided uh, logically, not mechanically, into an area for image and an area for sound information. And that by, by that, I mean, it's one 35 millimeter, you know, strip. However, only part of that negative, you know, it's one negative, only part is used for sound and, and the other part for image. And this was done in the camera itself. Lalsta received the British patent for this invention in 1907 and was able to simultaneously play back the sound and image which were synchronized from that one strip of film. This is a tremendous development, as we shall see. In 1921, Lee DeForest improves on the sound on film concept, which had already gone through iterations of improvement and calls it the phonofilm or phonofilm. It records sounds as waveforms of the audio translated by a microphone from mechanical energy to electronic waves. That's what microphones do, if, if you don't know. They take wiggly air and they make it wiggly electricity. Yeah, wiggly air. I'm not fucking around. Me talking right now into this microphone, I am generating a pressure wave. That varies, but to keep it simple, don't worry about that. Anyway, that pressure wave goes towards the microphone and hits what's called the diaphragm. And there are various types of microphones that use various types of capsules. But in, in the long story short is that when the diaphragm gets wiggled by the pressure wave of my voice, it gets translated into an electrical charge that can then be recorded into materials like vinyl as the grooves on a record, on a tape as magnetic variation, because, because tapes are, are magnetic, you know this, yes, or on a computer as digital bits. The digital bits parts come through analog to digital converters, and there's a whole FFT and PCM, so you can QED my MP3. 
but but seriously, if you're interested in researching it more, it's both interesting and rewarding. But that's what I mean when I say it goes from mechanical to electrical. Anyway, instead of electrical, it, it went onto film. It stayed stored on film and it could be reproduced. But this is where the concept of big time film sound comes from. But the film was relatively overlooked in Hollywood. Vitaphone was a system that Warner Brothers went with initially, which was a sound on disc system. So like the vinyl records that we have now. Warner Brothers, the studio where the Maltese Falcon was made, would uh, would probably use this up until 1931. There were other sound-on-film technologies like the Fox Movie Tone and the RCA Photophone that were picked up by other studios as well. In 1938, the Academy Curve is created. Exhibitors and film productions were having difficulty getting consistency across movies with regards to sound capture and sound reproduction, i.e. between, or e.g., no, i.e., i.e., between recording and playback, things had the potential to sound very different depending on where you were playing it back and how you recorded it. The Academy of Motion Pictures creates what's called an equalizer curve or a configuration of adjustments to sound to help ensure uniformity across exhibitors as well as productions. The exhibitor will play sounds with these adjustments made every time, so record your sound planning for this. These curves are normal and, and can change over time due to changes in the technology used. The other curve that you may be familiar with is the RIAA curve, or the Recording Industry Association of America, which helps get the correct sound out of vinyl records. Vinyl records don't reproduce sound uniformly, and if you've ever listened to a record player through a preamp that doesn't have the RIAA curve setting, otherwise known as a phono preamp, then you'd find it very strange sounding and decidedly incorrect. Citizen Kane then comes and flips the script in terms of sound. Writer, director, star, and radio professional Orson Welles pays particular attention to the way that this film sounds. He starts by extensively using ADR or automated dialogue replacement or dubbing or looping. This is like re-recording the audio in another location or in another situation with the aim of getting better audio quality. This is a technique that is used extensively, even to this day. The Maltese Falcon may have had some ADR, but it generally looks very well done, if at all. Already at this point, they, they had the concept of a boom mic or, you know, the, the, the boom mic, the microphone on the huge stick that the boom operator will hold over the actor's head. But they weren't the, the svelte affairs that they are now. They were fucking contraptions, giant mechanisms with pulleys and gimbals on them. It was wild. Part of that is that while the initial concept of what would become the shotgun or boom microphone had already been prototyped, they really weren't in use until the early 60s with the Electro Voice 642, 1960s. There's a link below for a YouTube video that is a bit of the behind the scenes for this stuff. In the, in, not below, in the show notes. I just, I, you people on YouTube say below. But, uh, the, this video is basically a commercial for Western Electric, but they, in combination with RCA, were making the equipment and the long-range microphones and microphone accessories that were flown or held above actors. 
They were just massive. Huge ribbon mics. Look up an RCA 44 or an RCA 77 for an example of what one of those bad boys might have looked like. RCA developed this in concert with Western Electric, if I recall correctly, and they were also a huge piece of this puzzle, getting the, the microphones up and out of the way while still capturing naturalistic sound was crucial to open up and free the actors from being locked in, in, in place near plant mics or microphones that are stashed or planted into the set design and set dressing like a potted plant. This film does take advantage of the mobility given to the actors. The linked YouTube video called The Sound Man outlines a different and more industrial process for recording synchronized sounds. And I can imagine that this is where slating comes from. You know, the, the board with the sticks where someone says, scene three, take one, action, plap, you know, with the sticks. But it's still interesting as hell. They are recording audio in a, a central location past the sound mixer's desk. And as it is a much more involved process to actually develop the film, doing it at a scale that is larger than I initially thought. This centralization definitely helps the consistency of the process and is actually fascinating to watch. Aside from this, there was also a lot of work done on making the cameras quieter and transitioning to incandescent or tungsten lights because arc lights actually make a loud buzz. Noise reduction techniques were also invented and at Warner Brothers, the de-esser was even created. Anyway, all of that to say that this was and is completely crucial to the Maltese Falcon, that they could capture sound on the day well and intelligibly, or that they could successfully ADR it later. The performances are very important, but while there aren't a lot of intense close-ups, there's plenty of talking. And it's important that we get that quality of Bogart's voice, that thing that makes him him, and that we get the live sound, that we see his face to, to make it real. The timbre, the tone, his accent, the way he pronounces things. Bogart had developed a slower, cooler way of speaking for the character, but was even course-corrected to get back to that abrupt staccato delivery of an energized Sam Spade slash Humphrey Bogart, this being policed by producer Hal Wallace, but it still retains his slight danger of a potential lower-class denizen of an unpredictable and large metropolis like New York City. That range, though, makes the performance all the more dynamic. Suddenly animated, Spade can shock the other characters and, and shock the audience, who is also along for the ride. So yeah, sound was really important, not just for Bogart because he wasn't the only star shining on this particular silver screen, but perhaps especially for him because this was an iconic film for him and he is probably the most tied to the film and the genre as a whole. Bogart kept fine company. Mary Astor is second billed as Bridget O'Shaughnessy. Astor working in silent movies through her teenage years, managed to make the transition to talkies after a brief stumble where, for some idiotic reason, her voice was briefly considered too masculine. In Bridget, she brings a duality that, once you understand the, the twist, you can really nail down the choices that were made. This is similar to Faye Dunaway's performance in Chinatown. 
Peter Lorre and Sidney Greenstreet play Joel Cairo and Casper Gutman, respectively. Lorre, a Hungarian actor, found success in the theater in Vienna and then in Berlin and gained international notice playing the serial killer in Fritz Lang's 1931 movie M, which is definitely a movie to watch. He worked steadily throughout the 30s, but then had some stumbles just before being cast by John Huston and joining up with Sidney Greenstreet. Greenstreet was an accomplished stage actor who did not begin to work in film until his early 60s. Sidney Greenstreet was 5'9", or 175 centimeter, and around 350-ish pounds, or 158 kilograms, at the time of filming The Maltese Falcon. This is an estimate, and I'm not trying to call anyone out here, but he was particularly suited to play the aptly named Kaspar Gutman because he was a gentleman of generous proportions. Greenstreet shared many scenes with the 5'3", or 160 centimeter, and slight Peter Lorre, so it does seem that there was some type of odd couple mechanism at work here. Lorre and Greenstreet would go on to appear in eight other movies together. They were significantly better casts for their physical traits at the very least than the corresponding actors in the 1931 version, and through the substantially more modern vocabulary and grammar of cinematography, aside from the stellar performances and wonderful choices, these characters are further enriched. And please do not allow my brevity to imply that these performances are, are less than top tier. I'm, I'm generally unfamiliar with the time period. I don't have a lot of color or context to apply in this situation. And I also spent however much time talking about sound. So I'm going to, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about camera. I did specifically already mention Citizen Kane because upon rewatching Citizen Kane at some point around, when the 2020 movie Mank was released, I found it to be even more modern than when I first saw it in high school. A lot of that it was sound, yes, but a lot of that was screenplay. The other part of which there was a lot of was cinematography and good old camera work. Some of the same could be said about the Maltese Falcon. The modernity, I feel, comes in the understanding acceptance and capability of the camera being a component, not only in composition, but also in motion to complement, maybe to emotion, right? To complement the art form that we call film. There are several components to the visual aspect. I'll say that the components, as I'm going to amateurishly break them down, are composition, lighting, and motion. Yes, composition will result from lighting and change with motion. It's somewhat of a, a three-body problem, and they're all governed by the overarching orbital mechanics of motivation and story. I believe I will take the easy way out and just dig into the first scene. It starts at a minute 35 and ends at six minutes and four seconds. That's uh, four minutes and 20, 29 seconds, if I can count. And, uh, there's, there's a lot to look at. There will be pictures in your show notes. If you can't see them in your podcatcher, you can check out scumbags.com, S-C-U-M-M-B-A-G-S, or use the link in your podcatcher to go to the show's webpage. 
some good podcatchers will drop you a link to the episode page, which is ideal. We fade in on the Spade and Archer sign and pedestal down to see Spade in his chair rolling a cigarette. We go to an opposite to see Effie tell Spade about the client. This probably wasn't an L cut, but just on scene sound. We then go to a low, medium close on Effie, and the windows and the woodwork on the wall behind her create quite a bit of depth and energy as she's not squared off to them, nor are they perpendicular to the, or, or parallel to the horizon line, right? The angle is, is slightly Dutch or perpendicular, the, the vertical. Anyway, blocking and framing with the regards to the set will continue to be this a type of uh, no square with regards to the characters, which sure as shit will make a better looking movie, but will really make me work to try to figure out the geometry of this room. Was this office in the Cthulhu building? Switch back to a medium on Spade, which is again, ever so slightly not square. Then there's a great white on Effie as she opens the door and Wonderly comes in. We're seeing this over the shoulder of Spade and just about everything is in focus and Spade's back takes up almost exactly half of the screen. With his dark suit, it almost looks like Wonderly is walking into darkness. It's a low angle, so he looks huge, enormous in this frame, even though he's only about an inch taller than Wonderly in real life. The camera pedestals up when he stands up, which is really just good motivation. We swap back to the opposite cowboy, but here is where the shit really starts to kick in. Spade gestures Wonderly into a chair, and she needs to take one step to the left and then two forward to kind of walk around the desk. And the camera follows her motions in. The camera jukes a little bit to the left and then pushes in. It keeps them both in a medium, but they are at extreme opposite ends of the frame. Wonderly is framed against a darker filing cabinet wearing a lighter looking coat, a light fur, and a white shirt. Spade is framed up against the window and he's wearing a dark pinstripe suit. Wonderly also has a little more of a backlight. When we get the over-the-shoulder on Wonderly, we see that her backlight is motivated by a window that doesn't make a lick of sense, but it breaks up what would have been an otherwise dumb and boring wall. Sometimes it feels like my entire house and my office are just dumb and boring walls, so I know what that's like, and I know that just having a window there is great. Having a fake window is even better, and yes, this is the case. The window is also a central point between Spade and Wonderly. When talking about composition and the steel yard, and yes, that's the term, things that are brighter and things that are close to the center of the frame will generally get your attention more, larger, brighter, closer to the center. That window in the center will bring your attention between and subsequently distributed across Wonderly and Spade for that angle. There's some stuff in the extreme foreground, like the edge of Spade's chair and the lighter and whatnot that's on his table. The implication here is that it's a wide lens. Makes sense because again, almost everything is in focus. Also, those lighters now are like super rare and go for a pretty penny, but they're cool as hell. Eat your heart out, Zippo. And I'll take this opportunity to talk about wide lenses and hyperfocal distance. Hyperfocal distance is the focus distance as at which everything from half that distance to infinity will be acceptably sharp. This depends a lot on the construction of the lens and the aperture setting. I have lenses from the 70s, but not from the 40s, so I'm not really experienced there. But that being said, lens technology has changed a lot, and in the 40s, just getting a wide-angle lens was big shit. They make use of the wide-angle in this movie, though. They bring us closer 
using motion and using that wide angle of view. They bring us literally as well as, as symbolically into the scene. And I won't, I won't talk any more shit, I hope, but we do some reaction shots on Wonderly and Spade and we're getting kind of closer in every cut. First, we start at the over the shoulder, then we're in medium close up. And this is going on as Wonderly is telling Spade about her sister being abused. The vibe here, and at least it was, it was definitely the vibe for me the first time that I saw the movie, fucking however long ago, is that we're buying the story and we're getting more intimate with the characters, but also they with each other. It comes back out to over Wonderly Soldier to see Spade, but the opposite goes right back to that medium close-up on her with the soft focus. He's focused on her. Wonderly is often looking to her right when telling her tale, which is away from Spade to our left. And it, that means to our left. Looking left, at least in Western culture, and with regards to the frame of a photo or film or, or visual art, is seen as having a negative connotation. Archer walks in around that time and it's all low angles for every shot that he's in. Foreshadowing? Maybe. Stylistic? Definitely. He's wearing a, a, a tone of suit that is closer to the walls, but the walls have a certain texture to them and his suit has a different one. It's also slightly pinstriped, which helps separate him from his background. I saw a clip of an AI colored version of the movie and it isn't great. In the show notes, I actually uh, use AI to colorize a, fr a frame. It's not great. Everyone is, is a bit yellow and orange and it's probably the makeup. It's not great. There's also a lovely little dark area midway between the door and Spade's desk. And it's almost as, as, as Archer walks past it, he walks through a shadow and it's almost as if he walked through the valley of the shadow of death. The conversation between Spade and Wonderly continues, but the camera follows Archer's movements as he perches himself predatorily on the edge of Spade's desk. He seems big compared to Spade and Wonderly and he's turned towards her. He and Wonderly are also at extreme edges of the frame with Spade smack dab in the middle. Again, foreshadowing, right? That deadly tension between them. The camera does a great job of following Archer's movements as he sits down on the desk. There's an over-the-shoulder from Wonderly's POV and she sees Archer completely lounging on Spade's desk. It's a bit of a shock to see a wall behind Archer and whatever, uh, you know, geometry, architecture. But we do get that hint of the spade and archer lettering on the windows coming in on the wall. Again, this is not a square set. It is basically all impossible angle from where I stand. And uh, that's movie magic. The camera tilts down when archer tilts down too. Back to the medium on Wonderly because spade and archer are both in. Wonderly sees them both together, stooges. You know, there's a, a good camera move when people stand up and then there's that last supper kind of blocking on it, but it's all from a low angle. And when Archer has the money, it's an even lower angle because he's a scumbag. The camera then tilts down and dollies back to open the room to get a master with them at each end of the frame, Spade and Archer. And then it tilts down to see that um, Spade and Archer lettering coming in from another window that the sun physically could not be illuminating. But then we fade out. It's very iconic. It, it, it isn't, it's based in realism, but it's, it's a movie. Okay. The set is, is the set is decently large and pretty open so that the actors have 
space to move in and out. The camera does as well. Not all the time, mind you, but enough. It's smooth and it's motivated to make the character's movements feel more immediate. Immediate, maybe? I, I feel something, but I can't quite describe it. The camera movement also helps keep characters in frame. If you were poetic, you might say that they were trying to escape the circumstance ahead, but were powerless to do so, ironically destined to play out their parts. Perhaps characters locked in a prison of screenplay by diagonal bars. A lot of nice diagonals all over the place here. No thank you, says Wes Anderson. The camera does dolly in often, and in the grand scheme of things, and with these wider lenses, it feels like we, the audience, are walking in that space too. Like we're hovering nearby, like it envelops us. It surrounds us. The 1940s version of a parasocial relationship. It lends a lot of life to this movie, a significant amount of life, when you compare it to movie making from the 1930s. And by the way, if the photos for this aren't up right away, it's because I'm, I'm exhausted. I really can't imagine doing this for a living. This being analyzing film in depth. It's exhausting. Maybe it's just one of those things where the more you do it, the easier it gets. A lot of this comes from John Huston, though. It's funny, really. The screenplay has just the tiniest bit of mystique behind it in that I've heard two stories about it. One was that it was based off the screenplay for the 1931 The Maltese Falcon and that Huston had left it on his desk. Basically, that screenplay. The other story was that Huston had asked an assistant to parse out the useful parts of the book, The Maltese Falcon, and drop it into screenplay format. For both of these stories, the next step is that Jack L. Warner shows up while Houston is out and grabs the screenplay, ostensibly unfinished and unpolished, not even a rough draft, and loves it. So that would explain the similarity to the story as well as the similarity to the 1931 film, which was also very similar to the story. And the idea of the screenplay accidentally getting made is very novel. I'd like to believe it, but even in, in reading the book, you can see this movie. It's a bit like falling off a log. Regardless, the movie isn't made yet. Houston goes and, to crib a phrase from Edgar Wright, storyboards the movie within an inch of its life. If I recall correctly, that quotes from memory. Please correct me if I'm wrong. As in to plan it down to the very last shot. It sounds silly, and, you know, maybe it sounds a little egotistical or obvious even, but this is how a lot of successful productions, and, and by successful, I don't necessarily mean at the box office, but on time and on budget. This is how they do it. For, for scenes, you need to have setups. To have setups, you need to have cameras, lenses, lighting, sound, set, wardrobe, blocking, all that and more lined up and organized by time of day for the planning of the shoot over time and for arranging the call sheets. There's definitely room to experiment on the day. And there were a few notable experiments that made it into this movie. But if you start from scratch for every setup, then it just takes so much time to get things in order. Then you need to change over to the next setup. And in having everything already lined up, you can figure out how best to optimize setup changes. This was unusual at the time. Filmmaking was still somewhat immature in many ways. It's very useful to have this level of planning which is interesting because this was Houston's first foray into directing. John Houston was a writer. He didn't invent the city of Houston, but he's a, a particular character nonetheless, large, larger than life maybe, 
I can't imagine John Houston Young because I can only imagine him from Chinatown. And, well, you know, listen to that episode for more. It turns out John Houston was young once. He got to write dialogue on contract for Universal Studios. He even wrote dialogue for his father in the movies A House Divided and Law and Order. Kachung. He was no stranger to tipping his elbow, and people knew it. A horny drunk at that. He also knew how to pick him, though. Actors. Bogart, Astor, Laurie, Greenstreet. Even dear old dad makes an appearance. He'd made a good friend of Bogart and went on to direct Bogart in more films, like Sierra Madre, Key Largo, African Queen. Word on the street was that on, on, the, on that last film, The African Queen, Everybody got dysentery except for Bogart and Houston because they were only drinking rum, whiskey, or gin. Fun story. It's interesting that the screenplay, according to stories, was basically an accident. So here I shall return to just praising the thought process of DeShiel Hammett. There was some of that screenplay, nay, book, that never made it to production. Due to the Hayes Code, any mention of homosexuality was strictly verboten, so Joel Cairo, who I mean, come on, is kind of just an eccentric fellow in the movie. In the book, Effie outs him right away. This guy is queer, is what she says straight up. Spay's line here isn't terribly different, but he gets the message. Gardenia. Quick, darling, in with him. The other telling one is the word... Gunsel. That, hilariously enough, has come to mean tough guy or shooter. However, the origins of the word are different. The origins seem to be from Yiddish and they mean little goose, but it was used to imply a sexual relationship between two men where there was a distinct power disadvantage for the younger Gunsel. And if you look up the word now, it is criminal carrying a gun from Oxford. However, it is not that. Or it was not that, and now it is through usage and language is fluid and malleable, and I know, and I accept this, although I do bristle at changes that are perhaps too recent to just make sense, and business world, I'm looking at you. But Casper Gutman, Joel Cairo, and Wilmer were gay, and that had to be erased from the movie, but it was definitely hinted at in ways. I may be confusing my quote here, but in the novella, Hearts in Atlantis, in the book, Hearts in Atlantis by Stephen King, the protagonist of that story, whose name I can't fucking come up with at the moment, during a Maltese Falcon and Kane Mutiny double feature, sneaks a kiss with his love interest during what is described as Peter Lorre's very gay turn. At least that's how it is in my head. I haven't confirmed that quote, but I probably will after I'm done editing this. But the fact that he was gay didn't really hit for me until I read Hearts in Atlantis, and I was just like, oh. But it's interesting to consider the spectra of sexuality that was erased by the Hayes Code in the 1930s, and to think of where we are as a society, and where we as a society might be on the subject in the year 2021, had that not been the case. Another really fascinating thing was the expert use of the MacGuffin. I love a good MacGuffin. I swear I really do. I'm a sucker for MacGuffins. MacGuffin me up, fam. Pulp Fiction has an exemplary MacGuffin. The MacGuffin, coined by Alfred Hitchcock, might be my favorite plot device. I say might because I've never actually thought this through, but it does seem like it's up there. 
Dude, where's my car? Has a MacGuffin. And that is saying something. The Falcon in the Maltese Falcon is potentially one of the absolute top tier greatest MacGuffins that the world may have seen. But it does so much more than just motivate the plot. The titular Maltese Falcon brings the characters together by location and in conflict, and it is just sublime. The movie is tight and local because of it, but aside from that, it reveals the true nature of the characters to us. Gutchman is excessively greedy, Cairo is petulant, Bridget is calculating, Spade is bemused. At the end, the Falcon that was chased across oceans, that was killed for, is a fake. This is a particular metaphor for achieving fame or wealth where it's just not obtainable. It's never enough. You can kill three people, but it doesn't get you closer to the Falcon or, or happiness or whatever it is. It gets you month behind a moving target. There's a hopelessness and a futility in this because as a criminal and as vile as the rogues gallery may be, they are ambitious. The city, any city, it does not shake, rattle, or even roll at the antics of this cadre of perpetrators. It is giant, unknowable, with incalculable possibilities and probabilities. The suburbs hadn't really quite popped off yet because this movie is actually pre-war and Hammett's work was entirely between World Wars I and II. There was no comfortable planned neighborhood for this melodrama to take place in. Tract housing had no place in this story of intrigue, lies, and betrayal. Sure, people had cars, but they called them machines or heaps. They looked like some Downton Abbey nonsense. Cars weren't cool yet. They got cool in the mid-50s. Yeah, I fucking said it, and I'll stick by it. But that's also that post-war boom. There's a hopelessness in, in this city, the city of San Francisco in the Maltese Falcon. Jesus fucking Christ. There's a hopelessness in this city, a cynicism. O'Shaughnessy went to Spade and Archer because they seemed like they'd do a job no questions asked. Like they were crooked and could be bent to handle something. Or that they were scum and hardly worth the bullets that might take their lives. Residents of a construct of corruption. But it doesn't hold true. Not for Samuel Spade, he of the cultivated crooked persona. And that is where Bridget miscalculated. She might have heard on the street that Spade would swing an investigation one way or the other, but she didn't count on him having integrity, having loyalty. And while there are no heroes in this movie, really, I'll say it again, there are no heroes. Spade is the only one that approaches doing the right thing. This gray, ambiguous, badass presence really caught the hearts and minds of moviegoers. One moviegoer in particular was so enraptured in the persona that Bogart builds for himself before, during, and after this movie that he ends up creating several characters in billion-dollar franchises that are influenced by him. And that moviegoer is George Lucas. Life influences art, but then art influences life in this weird Ouroboros of, I don't know, existence? The human condition? Yeah, I was reaching for something there, but I didn't quite get there. And had I gotten there, I might have leveled up or transcended or perhaps just gone right off the deep end. But in this somewhat awesome and terrible cycle, we've arrived at one of the most fascinating stories that has, like the last action hero, leapt out of the screen and into our reality. 
the story of the Maltese Falcon. Well, it's actually called The Mystery of the Maltese Falcon, One of the Most Valuable Movie Props in History, and it's an article by Brian Burroughs, published February 19, 2016, on VanityFair.com, or perhaps actually in Vanity Fair. But I saw this on the website, and it is riveting. It goes into the provenance of the prop falcons used for the movie and the air of mystery and intrigue that have surrounded them in the past several decades. You should check that out. Link in the show notes. For the last bit of trivia, I want to leave you with something. It's not shown in the movie, but in the book, if memory serves, Wilmer kills Gutchman and maybe Cairo and then gets gunned down by the police. There are no further adventures. Another rough day in the city for Sam Spade. Think about this hopelessness. Think about how money is never going to be enough. How the treasure that you search for might be fake. How it might not even exist. Think about how you never really know if you can trust anyone. Think about how predetermined your life is. But then think about this. The most famous line from this movie, a line that ostensibly minted a movie star, was found on the day. Harry, what is it? The uh, stuff that dreams are made of. Huh? Instead of just explaining the whole movie, which basically explained as it went along, Bogart suggested a one-liner. He paraphrased a line from Shakespeare's The Tempest. Prospero, the magician, says, We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Bogart, it turns out, was well-read and erudite, subverting his gangster and tough persona. But this line was quite succinct. There was hope, there was purpose, there was MacGuffin enough to kill for. We find our purpose, we make our meaning. And so quickly, within a few scratches of a pocket knife, it's gone. <laughs>